0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Sounding Jewish Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Samantha Cooper, and each episode presents my conversations with musicologists, ethnomusicologists, and sound studies scholars who specialize in the music and sound of Jewish experience. I am absolutely delighted to welcome you to today's episode featuring Dr. Jessica Rhoda. Please note... All music samples included in this episode that are marked for women and girls only have received approval from their respective creators to be included in this podcast episode. Thank you very much. Welcome. Thank you so much for agreeing to join me on today's podcast episode. I would love to invite you to introduce yourself.
1: First of all, thank you so much, Dr. Cooper, for inviting me today. I'm Jessica Rhoda. I'm an anthropologist, ethnomusicologist. Assistant Professor of Jewish Civilization at Georgetown University, and I'm currently a fellow with Dr. Cooper here at the Katz Center, the Center for Advanced Judaic Studies. And I'm very excited for this new opportunity.
0: I'm so excited to have the chance to work with you this year. We've been like ships passing in the night. We've had many opportunities over the years to be in a little bit of conversation, but this is, I think, a more extended opportunity. Indeed. I'd love to ask you just about the title of your current or most recent research project, or perhaps if you're in an area of transition, where were you before and where are you headed?
1: Yes. So I think I'm going to mention my upcoming book, uh, March 2024, For Women and Girls Only, Reshipping Jewish Orthodoxy Through the Arts in the Digital Age. Amazing. work, uh, which was centered on ultra Orthodox, Hasidic, and Litvish female artists in New York and Montreal, and how they are reshaping orthodoxy from within and outside, because I also have an entire chapter about artists who left the community. So this work led me to a new project that I'm developing this year at the Katz Center, which is on music, spirituality, and healing in Orthodox Jewish circles.
0: Wonderful. So what was one of your earliest encounters with Jewish sound or music? And why was this such a formative experience for you?
1: I would say that the first... Mm, that was very influential for my trajectory. Is Montreal Hasidic neighborhood of Tremont. and it was actually through more sound. It was through Yiddish. Mm. Sometimes, you know, shabbos you used to walk and you can listen or hear the voices of children and men singing some songs. And I would say that was a very important moment because the beginning and it and it was also called. Connected to my discovery of ethnomusicology, trying to understand human life and in this context more specifically Jewish life, connection to Jewish music is really connected to my desire to reconnect also with my Jewish past, lost heritage. So this is an identity quest that then led me to the music, but that's not the music that was at the center, I would say. But indeed, it was extremely important because it was so far from anything
0: that I could imagine and when I think about Jewishness as well. It- and This might be a little bit of an awkward question, but if you're willing to talk about what that journey to Jewishness looked like before you encountered this Yiddish soundscape in Montreal? I'd love to hear about it. That's a very good
1: question. So I would say I was born in the south of France. My mother is from Algeria, from North Africa. She grew up in a foster home with Jewish, Muslim, and Christian children coming from a biologically mixed Jewish and and Catholic background. And a lot of secrets about this heritage that came actually later on. My family was Perez, so that's my great-grandmother. And my mom grew up in an environment where, I would say, she has a kind of a rejection of religion. And my father grew up in a very communist family, also a very strong rejection of religion. So I grew up in French Guyana. Knowing that I had a complicated history and mixed background but I was always extremely spiritual as a child and searching for communities in French Guiana the majority of communities that you have were christians mm-hmm. so you didn't have anything else you didn't have jewish or muslims i didn't grow up with this this sense of jewishness i would say when i was 12 i went to see a cousin in the uk and this is a sister of my mom this sister married Ashkenazi who was a very Jewish family, Holocaust survivor. So in this, in this home of this aunt, Jewishness was there, not outspoken, but it was there also because my cousin at the time was in Israel in a kibbutz. So hey, I started to ask a little bit more, and I I remember at the time I was telling said, oh maybe I will do like my my cousin, I will go in a kibbutz in Israel, and you know time fly. I came back to to French Guiana, then I had a trip to India. I had also a moment where I used to go to church with a Baptist church mm. with a friend who were American Baptist, and I was extremely curious, and it was a little drama in my my family <laughs> because you know what is this kid is going
0: to For church.
1: The church. <laughs> And, and then I had this moment of connection to Jewishness, but it passed. And then I went to India with my mom, and then I was extremely interested in Buddhism. And I had, you know, some little instruments at home, and I studied yoga. I remember actually in India also doing a training in massage, and it was a plenty and yoga. It was a lot of Israeli. So another kind of Jewish connection that also my mom talked about it, but not that much. And then I left French Guiana at sixteen, and I arrived in France, and then. My connection to Jewish life and to Jewishness started then, and at the time, my mom started to talk much more about how she grew up and Jewish life in Nigeria, and then progressively Jewish life became much more central to my life, I would say. At 19, I left France for an exchange program in Montreal, and then I used to go to Hillel there at the University of Montreal, and I started to become Orthodox, Mm. to embrace much more, and to go to Chabad to... Yeah, for a certain amount of years, my brother came and I remember a little moment where he called my mom and said, Jessica <laughs> is becoming a little bit intense in her Jewishness. <laughs> I don't know what is happening. It was during Pesach. Yeah, and that was that year when I was 19, when also this Jewishness that was not hidden, that was completely visible,
0: that was not part of secret, came to me. That kind of takes us full circle in a way, back to your story of Montreal and the soundscape there that sort of entranced you when you first arrived.
1: Yes. And then the the, the surprise is that after that, I wanted to do my master in Montreal in ethnomusicology. I discovered Monique Desroches, amazing mentor. She became my PhD supervisor later on. But my mom said, come back, come back, come back first. And she pushed me to encounter people doing Jewish music in France Mm. And I met Hervé Roten at the time, and I remember going to his office and telling him about my story. And then he opened this manuscript and he said, look, I'm going to receive a bunch of manuscripts from Alberto Remsi. And actually, your name is Rhoda, and there's a connection because we talk about the Rhoda. My family name is an old Sephardic name for medieval times, which is interesting because I found it also it exists in Ashkenazi circle. And anyway, that's another question. And he said, I think I have the perfect thing for you. You should look at those. And it's in Judeo-Spanish. So there's a strong connection with Sephardic identity. And it's Sephardim who kept strongly Sephardic identity and who moved to the Ottoman Empire. And why not doing a master with us? And I will, you know, you will also be training the archives and you have a little scholarship fellowship You'd be paid. You have a job, and I said okay, and <laughs> I stayed in France.
0: Esto era en un bodre de la mar
1: cuando empecé a amar una niña con ojos pretos sin poderle declarar. Una niña con ojos pretos, sin declarar.
0: So your mom did succeed at keeping you there after all.
1: Yes, at least for a couple. At least yeah, for a couple of years. Yeah. Yes,
0: yes. So tell me now a little bit about your scholarly trajectory. Why did you decide that your initial research topic was the one for you, and then progressively, how did you end up where you are now?
1: It's really connected to Hervé and to this identity quest again. So I started to meet people who are much more like myself because a lot of people who are Judo Spanish descent were also had intermarriage and sometimes they abandoned also their Jewishness and they are not visibly Jewish. Uh, not all, but some and part of the Judo Spanish community in Paris. And uh, this is Hervé who brought me, offered me to work on this archives. And it was fascinating to go back to the 19th century, 20th century, with a very different Jewish life and also the the music, the way we used to talk about Judeo-Spanish songs as being, you know, connected to medieval Spain, connected to this very old heritage and that was preserved so that's my master. I, I worked and I did musical analysis on Alberto Remzi and trying to understand how he matched the traditional repertoire with modernist, a little bit Manuel de Faya influences, Albenitz. So how he 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 combined both languages, and it was around the Coplace Farri. And I had this change to really go also into the, the entire material of the manuscripts. And, and all of his music was inspired by Sephardic music, but he wanted to bring that music to a concert hall to make it you know, art music. Mm-hmm.
0: Al ruido de
1: agua una voz yo sentí Sentí una voz que dizía "Ay, dime,
0: aydeme sol en mí"
1: So that's my master, but I was in France and I remember everybody was saying, oh, yeah, the majority of Sephardic Jews from the Ottoman Empire, Turkey and Greece, migrated to France in the early 20th century. So I said, OK, where are they? I know Jewish life in France now. I, I was at the time working with Hervé de Fondation, uh, Jewish foundation, and it's one of the largest Jewish foundation in France. And, you know, North Africa, you know, Jews from Eastern Europe, Alsace. But where are those Jews from the Ottoman Empire? And where is this music? And progressively, I discovered those association mm. uh, organizations, but they were not in shul. They were not in synagogues. There was no more chazan. There was no more religious life from this area. But those songs existed on stage, also in those organizations. And I started to question, I was very curious about what was happening. Also, the fact that in many festival world music festival or art music festival you have those songs you know in judo spanish that were sung not necessarily also by people people coming jews from the ottoman empire but by other jews from north africa or even ashkenazi jews or even sometimes non-jews and this music was there to celebrate the dialogue between jews and muslim and i thought it was an interesting subject also in ethnomusicology it was like okay uh very rare people working on France, but I said, I think I want to do something in France and also multi-sided. So being in in Paris, in Lyon, in Marseille, and then I went to Israel a little bit. I went to California, tried to compare. So that's my PhD. And my PhD, so it's ethnography, but I also have some, I would say, historical musicology trying to trace the development of this music as an heritage, Mm -hmm. not this corpus that was distinct than any others. And more importantly, that you do not find, or at the time at least, new melodies that were considered Judo-Spanish. So this idea of a stable, a fixed heritage, that doesn't change. And that is lost, that was lost, that we try to give life again. I really wanted to do a joint program between France and I wanted to go back to Canada. Mm -hmm. So in 2007, I started my PhD in a joint program with two PhD supervisors, Monique Desroches in Montreal and François Picard in, in Paris, both of them specialists of music and rituals. And it was a great adventure. It was wonderful to be in between both countries and to learn about the, the two different schools. And then I settled in 2010 in Montreal. I, I think I never fully embraced France, <laughs> but it was complicated. So I always tried to find a way to, to leave, and I really loved Montreal. So at the time, 2010, I settled in Montreal, and then I applied for a postdoc about a representation of Jewishness in public spaces. So I was really interested in... Festivals and how we portray Jews to non-Jews, and I studied this project on different festivals: the Arabic music festival, cultural festival in Montreal, another one, the Sephardic one, and then I worked also on a sacred music festival in Paris. And I was very interested in, especially, the dialogue between Jews and Muslim, and which type of repertoire.
0: Shalom alechem, alechem. So these were more contemporary Project suddenly.
1: Yes, exactly. But it was also a component about, oh, this nostalgic past, especially for Morocco. Jews from Morocco that, you know, unfortunately, we don't have the life anymore. We're in diaspora and trying to bring back this heritage to the present. But I was much more contemporary. And then I started a project on Samuel Maghrebi. I was very interested in this period where actually when I was in France, working with Hervé Roten at the European Institute for Jewish Music there, a lot was connected to Judo-Spanish music, Yiddish songs, Kazanout. But if you think about Judo-Arabic or just Arabic and Jewishness, it was almost absent, hmm. especially on stage. And then in 2014, uh, when I discovered some Maghrebin. This is when I have met also my colleague, uh, Christopher Silver, and we started a project with Stephanie Schwartz at the Montreal Jewish Museum, an exhibit. We did an exhibit about Samet Maghribi to discuss, actually, the tension between religiosity and secularism. It was at a time where we had a lot of tension in Montreal about that, and also about Jewishness and Arabness. Mm. And I remember it was not that popular to talk about this. And suddenly now, if you think about World Music Festival, you don't see judo-spanish and music, Sephardic song anymore. It's much more Jewish experience in the Arab world, in Arabic, that is celebrated. <laughs> So that's this, I would say, this this project on representation of Jewishness in Arabic. Mm-hmm. So let me to write this paper about Samuel Maghrebi and at the same time, this idea of going back to when a classical ethnography, you know the Urammo Hasidim was still in the background, mm-hmm. and like, hmm, I think I would like to go to 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 know more again about this community who were very different than mine. And in 2015, I started this project, but it was not connected to music at all, and it was a lot about understanding people who left this world, this Mm -hmm. religious world. And I thought at the time that to get access, that was the easier way. And I was very involved in supporting an organization, helping people to leave the community. So that was in 2015. And then through what was so fascinating is that encountering people who left, a lot of them were artists, also some activists, but they kept a very strong connection to their Hasidicness through music and food, of course, but (laughs) music was, and soundscape,
0: I would say, was so central. I think it might surprise listeners to hear that folks who were off the DERA were still maintaining these very strong connections, cultural connections with the communities they were coming from.
1: Oh, yes. And I, I think because that music transcends In the religious, you know, when you think about music and religion, it's like, okay, we all know every, you know, religious group and I can go back also to healing, you know, how spirituality and religion and music goes together. And in many cases, this is idea to be at peace with yourself, right? And if you're not sure, if you're doubting, if you don't know, if you're happy in this religious space, for instance, in this community, the moment you sing, the moment you are collectively singing, you forget about the power potentially that the institution or maybe the rabbi you create something that is very different and there is something that is that could be liberating and Mm -hmm. also it's the kind of the memory the sensitive the physical and the the sounding memory is so powerful
0: But as you also said, it sounds like though you initially started this project looking at the off the derek community, that's not how it panned out in the end. Yes. So how did you end up working with individuals who are still part of the Hasidic community?
1: So that's interesting because I was not an activist at all because any kind of organization is just there to give the tools Mm -hmm. for people, especially when they want to transition in secular life. But progressively I had people who were inside but at the margin who contacted the organization and who found out that I was for instance organizing an event and reach out personally and and also I had some friends in the music industry who also make some connections because more and more that I've met people who left I also felt some nostalgia sometimes about certain aspects and I wanted to understand what exactly did they leave? What was the other side? Mm-hmm. And I tried to find ways to get to the other side. And also to get the other side in many cases was people who were in between who gave me access to the other side, people who uh, were doubting. And in the end, I went to the other side. I started to teach piano. I, I found different people who were interested also to meet me because there was some curiosity also by being a musician. And the lens of music was a way to connect with a lot of them. So I got access to some houses and then I also taught for a year in a program in Montreal. It it took a while to develop trust with especially with a with a specific community in Montreal and then with the school. I'm really thankful to a specific family in Montreal who gave me full trust. And one family is like uh also a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. And a few other individuals, some of my students that really trusted me. And it was in a fantastic lab that we created. I taught Marx. We had conversation about transgender or about sexuality and or about gender and sex. What is the difference? With a group of Hasidic women, not only Hasidic, but it was very, very interesting for me. And then all the artists, when I decided that this book will be about artists, all of them opened their doors. Even sometimes I was not able to meet them because they were very busy or they were in a different moment in their life, but all of them responded almost because there was, you know, some interest. And uh, I wouldn't say that I, you know, it's it's this book. It's it's not because I love the music that I decided to write about it. It's much more because the book is about women inside, but also in between, and some who left. It ends with a. Malky Goldman and Melissa Wise and it's also their their intersection between all of those spaces because my experience is to discover that there's no such a thing as an hermetic, you know space where everybody is like mainstream or in the norms and then you have the group who left and then you have the group of people who are in between but everybody
0: is interacting with each other. So that's kind of a twisting and windy way of taking us from how you ended up with the project you started in France all the way through your current Hasidic Woman project. Yeah, Yeah. it's long. No, no, it's amazing. (laughs) Well, you've mentioned a couple examples already, but do you have particular mentors or advocates or role models who have really paved the way to get you through your scholarly journey?
1: Yeah, I want to mention Hervé Roten because he was the the really the first one also who gave me he's such a passionate um person and he transformed, I would say, the ethnomusicology of you know, if you think about Jewish music in France and and more broadly in Europe. So he has been very central in the development of my career. Then I've met Edwin Serousi as well during that time when I was at um at the institute. And it was such a great inspiration. You know, if you think about it, musicology and Jewish music. And then my two PhD supervisors that were just outstanding to Francois Picard and, and Monique Desroches were always pushing me also to go beyond their classroom, to meet other professors and to create my own path. But I also had their Francois Picard was training among other things, but he was in China and, um, you know, working with a lot of different mentors and connecting to to the language, to the to the unfortunately, I'm not fluent in Yiddish, but really try to understand from inside. And same thing with Monique, who was working with music and rituals in the Caribbean, to participate in trance and rituals to be really inside. And they were extremely instrumental and Erica Lehr. She is at Concordia University. I've met her when I did my postdoc on the public representation of Jewishness and Sephardicness in Montreal and in festivals. And since then, Harry Keller has been a true mentor and extremely supportive of everything, you know, from my shift also from study in Sephardicness to Hasidic culture. And I'm very grateful that she's one of my mentors. And also, I want to mention Gilles Bibo, who was also a very important person for my training in anthropology.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah. So kind of, you know, ethnomusicology and anthropology. And I would say today, if I think about this work, the work and the mentorship of Ayala Feder has been also very, very central and in kind of very strong inspiration for, for my work.
0: In thinking again about For Women and Girls Only, this book that's coming out in March, which is very exciting would you tell me about that research process pertaining to Jewish music and why you stumbled into this story about technology and the arts Uh in the Hasidic women's community in multiple places?
1: Yeah. Wow. That's a big question. I think I want to say in terms of the contribution to music and Jewish music and at the musicologist, this book is not only about music. It's about sound. It's about the body and it's about images. And I think it, this is also a contribution, I would say, to the discipline that, especially this world, the, the Hasidic world, is a lot about performances. So when they sing, there is when the girls are singing when they have a play. So there is the dance part. There is the acting part. There is even the visual art. They are painting. There is sometimes some photos in the background, some images moving. So this very multi-part space. So this world helped me to think about music beyond, you know, the sound. Even if the sound is important, it's one part, but to, to, to think about a lot of different pieces when you think about music in this world. And the same thing also, uh, the last chapter is a lot about theater and film. There is also a sound component. So really the book is about artists in general and how those artists in this world navigate multiple spaces. Sometimes mm-hmm. they are dancers, but they are painters, but they are, they could also be in a home recording studio and they could compose. You know, you have a lot of different pieces because the sense and the understanding of the professionalization—it's very different than ours, mm-hmm. right? And I think in our world is also changing. You know, you you play an instrument, but you play other right. instrument, or okay, you mainly a singer, you mainly a chazan, but you know, you will do other things on the side. You can you can also sing on stage, so that's not something new. But for instance, you will potentially be your teacher, or a social worker, or a therapist, right. or you know, those multiple part.
0: But as the name of your book, For Women and Girls Only, implies, women's idea of fame and success in the ultra-Orthodox community is very different than even their male counterparts. Yes, right. yes, totally. You know, my book
1: initially was about male who are public and women who are private. Mm-hmm. And actually, the ethnography said something completely differently, <laughs> because women who are, are some of them who are artists, they also want to be audible and visible, mm-hmm. but in a different way, because right. they want still to be To be modest to the the law of modesty and sinew, they want to respect it. Right. So they embrace it. Some rejected the one who left, but they find new ways. That's thanks to the digital, I would say. They find new ways to be visible and audible and to do it not only locally, but globally. Mm -hmm. And that's the most fascinating part, you know, that you're in Montreal and within a day you can receive a play from, you know, from Monsey and it's all in, in English, you decide to translate it into Yiddish and to have certain part that will be recorded in the home studio in, in Montreal. And the other part will be potentially, you know, from Borough Park that you will, you know, the media arrangement, for instance, and you create a play that will be performed in Montreal in the middle of uh, January. But this is very informative and an informal and market, mm-hmm. And then you are able to record it and to send two cousins or two other women in Israel, in London, in Antwerp. So you create an informal market. Mm. So you have this part, which is still private. And sometimes you also have the name of those women circulating. Right. And then you have the news, so the chapter about the celebrity is, is very, very contemporary. It's very pandemic, I would say, phenomenon with the the women who are on YouTube. You know, Braha Shafa, Deborah Schwartz, uh, Shani Platsker, a lot of others who want to be, to show that there is this way and this need to have different type of role model for girls mm-hmm. and for women. And they write for women and girls only to make sure that in their case, this is a different way of being private. Right. So they create what I call a modest public space. But it's another way of of thinking about publicity and privacy and thanks to the digital. And I think this is also a contribution to the liberal art world because you have different ways as an artist. You don't necessarily want to show your face and for multiple reasons. And some want to show their face and their voice and some want to do that, but saying, hey, be careful, I want to be uh, only, you know, for women. If you're male, you know,
0: it's okay, you can watch, but this is your responsibility. It makes me think of the artist Sia, who uh, would perform with a wig and a mask on into the present day, actually.
1: Fascinating.
0: But it's, you know, maybe there are parallels in the more public sphere. Yes.
1: The question yes. of Kalisha is an, is another problem because there's the voice that you cannot, right. you know, listen. And, and, you know, there's a big debate about the, there was a fascinating uh, music video where you see a woman, you don't see the woman, you don't hear her voice, you see her hands, you see her taking care of the kids. Actually, it was a composition by Khayyalan Newhouse, Mm -hmm. who is a a Hasidic composer, very famous in in this world. I didn't write about the specific song, but there was a debate on social media about the fact that women were invisible. Mm. I didn't react because I wanted to say that actually they are visible. There's the name of the composer. You see the hand, you don't see the face, you don't hear the voice, you see a bunch of, you know, a lot of male on the screen. It's true, but it's a different type of visibility. Right. And that's what they are telling us. Mm-hmm. the one who won that
0: right. Have you had conversations with these women about how, other than perhaps writing for women and girls only on the videos, they're practically or not practically able to keep these videos out of the hands of men, or does that not concern them at all?
1: That's not the one who decided to do that. This is not a problem. Okay,
0: yeah. I mean, I
1: think it made you know the fact that some, that when I write about it, what happened when they decided to do that. So Deborah Schwartz has a very interesting take. She said that she started it um, because actually one uh, of her concerts, somebody took a video mm. and started to, to send it through WhatsApp and to a lot of different people. And she didn't have access right. to the content. And then this video will circulate and she doesn't have any control. you know, control. Right. So she said, look if this is going to happen because it will continue to happen i want at least to have the control of my own imagery those video will circulate but people will have other material to know about my own work mm-hmm. and my own artistic you know development so that's how she started just want, just want but
0: you just- Well, taking a bit of a 360, I know that you're now a professor at Georgetown and that you probably have many excellent undergraduate and maybe graduate students that you get the chance to work with. How would you say that the opportunity to teach others has influenced your research? Can you tell me a little bit about your recent lecturing or teaching experiences and how you feel like they might have contributed to your research agenda?
1: Yes. So it's a very good question. What is amazing, I would say, at the Center for Jewish Civilization at Georgetown, or I would say the School of Foreign Service, I teach at the School of Foreign Service, but I have students also from the college. So this ability to teach about music and religion, I would say half of my courses are half-half. It's this ability to first, when you think about music, to speak beyond the world of music. And of course, everybody listens to music, but you know, you have political scientists coming to Georgetown and... And they they don't see necessarily the art or culture, or they would just see the romantic part of it. You know, they don't think it as as an analytical tool or a tool to, you know, to create also tor- you know for torture a lot of very complex questions. So that's this ability, I would say, for students to raise question, to constantly. Push me to think about how, you know, our own work at a small level of music, or in this case, Jewish music or the Jewish world, could be relevant beyond the discipline and beyond the area of expertise. And also the importance of thinking about the transnational and the global, even when we go back to our own world Mm -hmm. of music and the Jewish world, to not only think about it through, oh, this is just a Jewish experience. I mean it's very hard because to translate into a book, you know, you would need another book. Of (laughs) course. Because this is the thick description and you go really inside, but also this back and forth, this constant back and forth between the specificity of our object and how it is connected to the rest of the world, right? Mm -hmm. And to bigger questions. You know, this new project on healing is really
0: connected to the global culture of wellness. Right. Post pandemic. Maybe we should talk a little bit about that too. Yeah. So let me ask you then, now that you finished for Women and Girls Only, you seem to be making a turn towards something a little bit less musical, which is really interesting. And it's it's a project from what you've said on spirituality and healing, perhaps through sound, but not exclusively through sound. So would you tell me a little bit about that?
1: There are two big interests here that I have. I mean, it started with one of the chapters that I wrote where actually women are really talking about how music is so important for wellness and for children who have disability and the fact that you have a sort of music therapy because there's support from the government and also the importance of social worker in the community and doing therapy and joining you know, the art and therapy. And I talk about it in one of the chapter, but it became like a, a big, big part. And I started to question this idea of wellness. And through this interest or the development of wellness, the doors of, and the words of healing and trauma and struggling started to emerge Mm -hmm. and to find different strategies to heal. And the question was like, to heal from what? Right. And that's the big question that I have. And then comes the term trauma and abuse. And how do we understand all those terms that are now kind of the language a lot of from therapies and how the different strategy they're taking to heal. So you have the therapy, therapeutic sphere, classical one, and then started to discover a lot of people going to a form of alternative medicine, thinking about some heiki, breath work, and also yoga in certain cases that became extremely popular. And then also when I think about the alternative medicine, also taking some medicine that are not Western. Right. Like what, for instance? Like different types of plants and the development also of, I would say the normalization of the need or the desire of of certain scholars to normalize psilocybin, for instance, mushrooms, you know, microdosing, different types of support from medicine. We call the they call it medicine, different types of medicine that are not coming from the Jewish world, mm-hmm. they're coming from much more from indigenous culture, right? right? And and spirituality. It feels very far
0: mm-hmm.
1: from. What I imagine as as a traditional, you know, Jewish space, but for some of them, they see it as we lost, you know, our indigeneity in the Jewish world as well, and we became too Western. So there is also very a very strong understanding of Western culture and trying and to say, look, we became too Western, we became too materialistic. And we need to transform that. And it's interesting because it's, of course, connected to this global culture of, you know, wellness. That is, And it's not only wellness, the fact that you have indigenous culture and knowledge that is, you know, seen as something extremely positive. There's a romantic part as well, for sure. And that's not new. So, and in those spaces, music is always there. Hmm. Sound is always there. What kind of sound? So that's a very difficult question. If you think about meditation sound, you know, instruments, so you have different types of instruments that will come. And then in some spaces, they will not have any Jewish references. In some cases, they will have uh, Jewish references, like an nigunim or a collective song, and especially if it's connected to Jewish holidays. So to bring some Jewish songs, and I would say voice, when I say voice, I'm thinking also about timbre, But kind of mixing those two environment or sound, I would say. It's, it's much more set of music. It's much more about a sound. This is connected to a bigger culture and they integrate some elements that, you know, you would take any kind of breath work or you will go to any kind of breath work session in the mainstream world and you adapted it into the Jewish space. So some people will integrate some Jewish melodies, but some won't because also the words are not necessarily important. Mm -hmm. And the last point is that in the space of healing, a lot came out also about love and self-love. And relationship. So, there is also something very interesting here in new ways of talking about love and relationship in the form world, in the orthodox world. Mm-hmm. That is potentially also connected to therapy, this normalization of therapy and this um, copal therapy, individual therapy that is so kind of thinking about it as a, a form of ecology of wellness and what are the different pieces. So, you see, it's very Big
0: for now. <laughs> so I don't know what the next book or if there's going to be two books. That sounds very exciting. How do you understand the field of Jewish music? What issues or challenges with this field of study do you think scholars today should remain attentive to?
1: I will start with your last. Um, and I think it's it's bigger. It's, it's really connected to Jewish studies or any kind of area of studies, right? I'm French, so I was, we don't have area studies. And people will say, oh, how terrible it is. We have disciplines. You know, is Jewish studies a discipline? You know, that's a bit a question. Same thing, you know, for many other things. But I would say that the big challenge is really, for me, I think, to continue to be in conversation with other area studies and the same with the other area studies. If you do Black studies or Indigenous studies, yes, but we need to be in conversation with other minorities. Right. And we need to constantly think about the specificity of our experience, but also to connect it to the rest. And the same thing, you you know, development of the history of Jews in North Africa or the Arab world for so long, it was really looking only at the Jewish experience. But to think about it now, this entire school, you know, think about the work of Sarah Abraham Stein in California, my colleague. All this entire development of historians to be in conversation with historians of the Arab and Islamic world and people also looking at Christianity to constantly be in dialogue with the others, right right? And it's hard because indeed there's this need of talking to each other, but also we need to go beyond that. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. And in terms of music, I would say this is the same thing, and also to, to be able to have more space in in Jewish studies and maybe also in, by in in music studies, this is another question. But at least if we if I think if if Jewish studies department will look at um you know contemporary not only contemporary, but contemporary but also historical, thinking about different types of objects that we can look at, different types of um trajectories and methods. Mm-hmm. Can we have you know historian you know looking at culture, looking at music, looking at sports, looking at uh, games you know in Jewish studies? Not only looking at uh, the Talmud. The Talmud is amazing, you know. Right. But video games, for instance, or I don't know. I'm giving this example of music because indeed we have a long history, and we we are here also talking about music. But I think it's it's important. And the challenge, and, and and you ask about if there is any Jewish music. Well, how would you understand the field the of Jewish field.
0: music? Or yeah. is there a field of Jewish music?
1: Yes, I think, you know, it's all the stories that we tell ourselves and that we want, so how we shape that. So it's it exists because a lot of other people before us, shape, they shape it. And how do we want people writing about Jewish music? How are we going to do it? And about what are we going to write? So I think it's it's a story that is constantly has to be written and it's a story uh, in
0: progress exactly exactly a story in progress yeah do you believe that there is such a thing as jewish music or an identifiable jewish sound why or why not if so how would you characterize it and if this question seems too essentializing what questions about the music and sound of jewish experience would you ask instead
1: so, of course, there is such a thing because musicians, artists, people are writing about it, are saying this is Jewish music. This is a Jewish sound. What is the most, I think, interesting or appealing in our work maybe as musicologists is trying to translate and to explain and to understand what is it behind when an individual or a group of people are characterizing it as Jewish music. And sometimes to, to look at the connection with other sound. And something that I used to say for the current work, for instance, that I have the book that I have, this entire moment where women are talking about, oh, this is this is Jewish music. And then you listen to it, and it's the cover of. A very popular song that is completely secular, but you just add, you know, uh, lyrics in Hebrew and mm-hmm. it's religious, connected to religion. It's not a new phenomenon. We always in the Jewish world and not only in the Jewish world, this this contrafactum phenomenon, mm-hmm. right? Because this is the story of sound, it circulates, it's just constantly in into dialogue. But the most exciting part is how, as human, as communities, we make sense and we we tell ourselves stories to make sense of our humanity and our, in this case, Jewishness and our existence.
0: That's beautifully put. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for speaking with me. And I'm so excited to be able to share your episode with the world. I think people are really going to enjoy what you had to say. Thank you so much, Dr. Cooper, for this amazing opportunity. Thank Uh you, Dr. Rhoda. (laughs) (laughs) And now a brief note from our sponsors. The Sounding Jewish podcast is grateful to be sponsored by the Herbert D. Katz Center for Advanced Judaic Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. This year, in honor of its fellowship theme, The Sound and Music of Jewish Life, many of the Katz Center's public programs, both online and in person, feature scholarship devoted to Jewish music and sound. On Monday, December 4th at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time in person at the Katz Center, Sarah Boonin-Benor, Gabriela Safran, and Hila Cohen will present a panel titled How to Talk Jewish, Listening to Jewish Voices Around the World. Please register online using the links in the show notes. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Sounding Jewish Podcast. I would like to take this opportunity to thank our sponsors, the American Society for Jewish Music, the Milken Center for Music of American Jewish Experience at UCLA, and the University of Pennsylvania's Herbert D. Katz Center for Advanced Judaic Studies. Tune in next month when I will be joined by Dr. Edwin Sarusi to discuss his ongoing study of Sephardic, Ottoman, and Israeli Jewish music. Bye for now.